All right, since it's 631 now, why don't we get started? Um, well, good evening, everyone. As I said, welcome to another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Um, as uh, you might know, if you're in a frequent visitor to our virtual events, things might look a little different. Um, we now have a lovely Q&A uh, chat box that you can submit your questions to during the lecture. Um, same process as our old way. Feel free to answer, ask those questions at any point during the lecture. Don't worry about holding on to them to the end. Drop them in the Q&A box when you have them. And our wonderful moderator, Ali Delianis, uh, will be able to watch your, uh, the questions come in and she'll be able to pick them out at the end. As a reminder, tonight's lecture is being recorded. So if you want to watch it again or share it with someone who wasn't able to be here, that will be emailed to you early next week. And it'll also be on our museum's website and on our, um, what is it called? Apple Podcast Catcher now. So if you have the podcast app on an iPhone, you can search Frost Tavern Museum and find all of our old uh, lectures there as well, as well as on YouTube and the museum's website. All right. So let's get started. Um, as always, the views of our speakers do not necessarily represent the views of the Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or Francis Tavern Museum. Let me introduce our speaker for tonight. Michael C. Harris is a graduate of the University of Mary Washington and the American Military University. He has worked for the National Park Service in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Fort Mott State Park in New Jersey, and the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission at Brandywine Battlefield. I'm now going to turn it over to Michael. All right, well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm gonna start with a little background because if I jump straight into the Battle of Germantown, I'm sure I'm gonna lose some of you. So um, first part is Germantown is part of a larger campaign known as the Philadelphia Campaign in 1777. Um, and that Philadelphia Campaign was happening simultaneously with the Saratoga Campaign. So all this is happening, um, uh, this fighting around Philadelphia at the same time we have fighting along Lake Champlain and the Hudson River north of um, New York City there. So just a little bit of background. Um, the Philadelphia campaign starts uh, late spring 1777 with some maneuvering in Northern New Jersey um, when the two armies are coming out of their winter encampment, um, basically up around where New Brunswick is today um, and also up around where Morristown, uh, New Jersey is. Um, after that initial maneuvering, uh, William Howe, the British commander in North America, is gonna put about 18,000 personnel, not all of those are combat troops, onto 267 ships and go out to sea. Uh, when he goes out to sea, uh, George Washington basically has no way of knowing where he went because there is no real Continental Navy to be able to track the, the progress of the British fleet. So it's gonna take a while for Washington to figure out what's going on. Um, ultimately, that fleet will go around the Delmarva Peninsula, up the Chesapeake Bay, and they will begin offloading that army uh, near modern day Elkton, Maryland on August 25th, 1777. Meanwhile, Washington has finally figured out um, uh, what Howell's up to, uh, he's moved his army out of northern New Jersey, across the Delaware River, down through Philadelphia and in the northern Delaware. In fact, they arrive outside of Wilmington, Delaware, the same day the British are offloading um, at near where Elkton is today. 
You then have some maneuvering through northeastern Maryland and northern Delaware through the uh, early part of September. You have an engagement at a place called Cooch's Bridge outside where Newark, Delaware is today on September 3rd, 1777. And then eight days later, the two armies maneuver up to opposite sides of the Brandywine River and you have the major engagement at the Battle of Brandywine on September 11th. Um, that is southwest of Philadelphia. For those of you that may not be familiar, it's about 20 miles southwest of Philadelphia is where this fighting is happening, um, just north of the Delaware state line. Um, that major engagement um, is important because the Brandywine River was a major obstacle in the 18th century. If he could have kept the British Army uh, west of it, William Howe would have never gotten to Philadelphia. But because Washington loses that battle, he now has to find a new natural barrier to keep the British Army out of Philadelphia. That new natural barrier will be the Schuylkill River. So then you have a, a couple different engagements to try to keep William Howe south of that river. There's a Battle of the Clouds on September 16th, Battle of Paoli on September 21st, but ultimately William Howe is going to outmaneuver Washington, cross the Schuylkill River on September um, 20, 23rd and then the 24th. He will then occupy the village of Germantown on September 25th, and on the 26th he will send a column under Charles Cornwallis to actually occupy Philadelphia. And one of the things you need to know is that um, if you try to visit Germantown today, it is not a separate village on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Today it's been engulfed by urban, you know, city construction, and it is now actually part of the city of Philadelphia. It's not a separate entity. It's now considered part of the uh, Philadelphia County. Um, but in the 18th century, Germantown was, um, I'm trying to remember the distance now, uh, I think eight miles outside the city. And it was a village um, settled mostly by German immigrants, hence the term Germantown. Um, and uh, the William Howe had camped an army there. Now, what is Washington's plan? Let's start diving into the meat of the battle here. Why did that not rotate? Why is that not rotating? Let's do it that way. There it goes. Okay. Um, now, Washington, through his spies, will learn that the British Army is not as big as it was at Brandywine, the other major engagement of the battle. Now, the British had about 16,000 troops at Brandywine. And now, while they do suffer some casualties there and some other places, they haven't had major combat losses. What has happened, though, is that William Howe has been forced to detach um, elements of his army to garrison places in his rear and along the river, or the Delaware River. So he has sent troops to Wilmington, Delaware. He has sent troops to Chester, Pennsylvania. And then he's got a large detachment under Cornwallis in Philadelphia proper. Um, so the army or the, the portion of his army that's camped in Germantown, you know, this portion up here, is really a shadow of the force that had fought uh, at Brandywine. Um, Washington, meanwhile, while he has suffered some battle losses, he's also received reinforcements. So the army he commands just prior to Germantown is basically equal in size to the army he had at Brandywine. So what does that all mean? Why am I making a point of that? Um, he has about the same, he's going to outnumber William Howe. He's going to attack Germantown with between 15 and 16,000 troops. And William Howe has maybe 9,000 troops camped at Germantown. So he's added an advantage. 
And Washington's going to come up with an exceptionally bold plan. He's going to um, divide his army into five different columns, come in on five different roads, and try to streak this British camp at dawn on October 4th. Um, it's an incredibly ambitious concept without radios and GPS and all that to try to maneuver five different columns to strike a camp at the same time the next morning after marching all night in the dark is a stunning attempt. Um, but let's, let's, let's dive into that plan a little bit more. So his far east column is a militia column commanded by this guy, William Smallwood. It's about 1,600 militiamen, um, Marylanders under Mordecai Gist, and New Jerseymen under uh, David Foreman. All militia. These are not continental regulars. They're gonna. Um, they actually have the farthest march that night. They have the farthest to go, and their goal is to come in on the far right flank of the British camp down what uh, was known as the Old York Road then, um, and strike. Uh, the Queen's Rangers and elements of the British Brigade of Guards on the far right flank. That's their, that's their goal. The next column uh, is commanded by Nathaniel Green, Continental Regulars, um, and there's three elements to this. Um, Alexander McDougall's Connecticut Brigade is leading the column. Following behind him is Nathaniel Green's own division, uh, mostly Virginia troops, there's one Pennsylvania regiment, but it's mostly Virginia troops. Um, now, because Green is an overall command of this column, uh, Peter Muhlenberg is commanding uh, Green's division on that night and early morning. And then coming in behind Green's division is Adam Stevens' division of Virginia troops. And you see, they're going to have to follow Smallwood for a little while, um, but they're going to turn down a different road. They're going to come down what was the Lime Kiln Pike um, and hit the right front of the main British camp. They're going to strike James Grant's British Division. The next column over is commanded by John Sullivan. Here's John. Um, these are also Continental Regulars. The column is led by Thomas Conway's Brigade, mostly Pennsylvania troops. Coming in behind him is Sullivan's own division of Maryland, Delaware, and Canadian troops. Now again, because John Sullivan's an overall command of the column, Moses Hazen is commanding his division that night. And then bringing up the rear of the column is Anthony Wayne's Pennsylvania troops. They're gonna come down um, what is today Germantown Avenue, was known as Germantown Pike. It's the main road through the middle of Germantown that they're gonna come down. All right, the next column over, oh, I'm sorry, get ahead of myself. Bring uh, Following Sullivan's column, so kind of following them down the road, is a reserve division under Lord Sterling. Um, these guys are meant to, uh, after the initial success, assuming there is some success, these troops were supposed to follow up the advantage because they would have had fresh ammunition. And it's two brigades, the New Jersey Brigade under William Maxwell and the North Carolina Brigade under Francis Nash. So they're, they're following Sullivan down Germantown Pike. Next column over is Pennsylvania Militia thousand men. Uh, John Armstrong is an overall command of the Pennsylvania militia and specifically James Potter's brigade is coming down this road. This is the uh, Ridge Road or Ridge Avenue today and they are going to strike the left flank of the British camp. This is Hessian Jaegers over here that they are meant to strike. 
And then our fifth column is the other Pennsylvania Militia Brigade under James Irvine. They're actually on the other side of the Schuylkill River. You see here the Schuylkill River snakes through our map. Um, they're supposed to march down to just opposite Philadelphia and put on a show, um, put on a display of force um, to make Cornwallis think there's an attack coming against the main, uh, directly against the city and the attempt to prevent Cornwallis from rushing reinforcements up to Germantown. That was the function of Irvine's um, um, march down towards Philadelphia. And what's sort of shocking about all this is they actually pull it off. All five of those columns actually got to where they were supposed to be roughly within about 15 minutes of each other, which is rather stunning when you think of what they had to do by marching all night. Um, many of these regiments marched 12 to 15 miles before they even went in the battle. Um, they left between six and seven at night the previous day, and they are good. They are arriving on the scene uh, five five thirty in the morning. Um, so march all night, and they're going to go right in the battle. All right. So initially, what's going to happen is John Sullivan's guys, specifically Thomas Conway's brigade. Uh, there was a British outpost. So let me back up here. The main vi uh, uh, village of Germantown stretches. It's a linear village that stretches um, along Germantown, what's today Germantown Avenue. And then there was sort of some scattered houses out farther, up, the, up this way towards Mount Pleasant and Mount Airy. And there was a British outpost, the 2nd Light Infantry Battalion, was camped up here on Mount Airy, um, detached from the main British camp back here. So the first guys that are going to get hit and overrun uh, is the 2nd Light Infantry Battalion. And they're going to get hit right at first light, um, first thing in the morning. Okay, so some quotes here. This is Benjamin Telmage uh, of the Light Dragoons, an American officer. He says, the troops were put in motion and in a few minute moments, the firing commenced. Taken almost completely by surprise, the outposts and advanced guards of the enemy were driven in with great precipitation. Um, a British quote, this is Lieutenant Martin Hunter of the 52nd of foot says the day had broke about five minutes, but it was a very thick, foggy morning and so dark that we could not see 100 yards before us. Uh, just as the battalion formed, the picket ran in and said the enemy were advancing in force. One of the themes you're going to find with this battle is the heavy, thick fog that's going to prevent line of sight for both armies. You're going to see a bunch of quotes talking about that. Um, so ultimately, once Sullivan gets his entire column deployed, uh, with Anthony Wayne on the north side of Germantown Avenue, uh, his own division of Marylanders south of the road, and then Conway shifting out here onto um, this right flank. Once they get fully deployed, they are just going to drive. Uh, they're going to completely overwhelm the, overwhelm the second light infantry battalion. They're going to overrun the 40th of foot. Um, and then some reinforcements that are going to get sent forward from the main camp are also going to be overrun. So some quotes of all this for you. Um, this is Captain Enoch Anderson. He's of the Delaware Regiment. He says, we pushed down all the fences in our front and marched to the battle. It was a very foggy morning. Bullets began to fly on both sides. Some were killed, some wounded, but the order was to advance. We advanced in line of the division. The firing on both sides increased and what with the thickness of the air and the firing of guns, we, we could see but a little way before us. There's a couple of things though that uh, Anderson's talking about here. 
the deeper in the Germantown they get, they start to encounter all these fence lines, these light gray lines you see here on my map. Um, and they're going to disrupt formations. Linear formations are disrupted by fence lines. And there was a lot of them in these backyards of, of the Germantown has houses. So that's disrupting their formations. And then they start firing volleys. And that thick black powder smoke is going to combine with the morning fog and make it nearly almost impossible to see any great distance in advance of these lines. So back to uh, Lieutenant Martin Hunter. He says, on our charging, they gave way on all sides again and again renewed the attack with fresh troops and greater force. We charged them twice till the battalion was so reduced by killed and wounded that the bugle sounded to retreat. Indeed, had we not retreated at the time we did, we should, we should, have, all been, uh, we should have been all taken or killed as the columns of the enemy had nearly gotten around our flanks. So that second light infantry battalion is completely getting overrun. This is Adam Hubley of the 10th Pennsylvania. On our side, our men behaved with the greatest bravery and repulsed the enemy, and with the charge of the bayonet, took their encampments and pushed them before us hard. Um, this is um, Friedrich von Munchausen. He's a Hessian officer that serves as an aide to William Howe. He says the British held off the vehemently attacking enemy for a time, but then had to retreat after heavy losses. I arrived just at that time and was astounded to see something I had never seen before, namely the English in full flight. So these British troops are retreating before these Americans and this Hessian officer had never seen that happen before. All right, so that's what's happening up here. We'll come back to them in a little bit. Let's shift over here to um, the far west side here and the attack of the Pennsylvania militia against these Hessian Jaegers. Uh, this is Lieutenant Colonel John Lacey, a militia officer, um, who is honest and says the militia didn't do what they were supposed to do. Said, had they equally acted their part with that of the center, meaning up, up here, um, commanded in person by General Washington and pushed the enemy's flanks with spirit and hilarity as they ought to have done, they must have been prevented of forming a second line, meaning the British, as they did without opposition. Um, uh, the Hessians, also don't give them much credit. This is Johann Ewald, one of the Jaeger officers. It says the Jaegers of which only the picket had been engaged counted three killed and 11 wounded, most of whom died from their severe wounds after several days. Now, having driven this ground quite a bit and walked where you can, um, oh, I'm gonna give them a little bit of credit. Let me get rid of this for a second. This Wissahickon Creek here, um, cuts a very narrow gorge through the terrain here. There are very, very steep hills on either side of this creek bed. And um, I don't honestly know how the militia would have gotten across this to actually assault this Jaeger camp, to be in all honesty. So to give these, these militia guys a little bit of credit, they did arrive where they were supposed to, but then they ran into some terrain they just could not negotiate to be able to assault this Jaeger camp. So to give them a little bit of credit based on the terrain that's actually there. Okay, so, all right, now let's go over to Nathaniel Green's comp. So they're coming in to the American left or to the east of Sullivan's column here. Um, mostly Virginia troops here, some Connecticut guys also, but mostly Virginians. All right, so some quotes from this column. Uh, this is a Sergeant Charles Talbot of the 6th Virginia. It says, we drove them immediately and so continued to drive them 
uh, we ran over their dead in great numbers. Um, this is uh, Augustus Weatherall, Frederick Augustus Weatherall, uh, the 17th Regiment of Foot. He says, the rebels moving on lined a bank and rail under cover of the fog and threw in a most severe fire upon the 4th Regiment, which had been ordered to the left of the 1st Light Infantry, and which knocked down almost the whole of their right wing. So let me explain this a second here. So if you see here on my map, uh, Russell's Brigade, the Virginia Brigade, comes down the line Kiln Pike, and the, the road in the 18th century was sort of a sunken road from years of wagon traffic. It had sort of uh, dug out the road, and it was sunken below the level of the ground on either side of the road. And then there was a fence, a post and rail fence on either side of the road here. And what Russell's brigade did, they came down this road and they saw a British regiment um, up out of the road, like in this field here. So if you can kind of imagine, you have this natural trench formed by the road and they're looking out, uh, like, you know, basically their heads are sticking up above the road bank and they see this British regiment, their feet under the fog. And what they did was they leveled their muskets on the bottom rail of the fence. So they had perfect aim and then they blasted a volley into the flank of the 4th Regiment of Foot and knocked down the whole, a whole wing of the, of the regiment. Um, so just a devastating volley. And that's what Weatherall's explaining there. I think I have another quote of it coming up too. This is John Marshall, who will later become Chief Justice of the US Supreme Court. Um, but he's in this column um, as a young captain. It says, the country through which the enemy was pursued abounded with str strong and small enclosures meaning those fences, which everywhere uh, broke the line of the advancing army. The darkness of the morning rendered it difficult to distinguish objects, even at an inconsiderable distance. So another reference to the fog there. Uh, this is G uh, James Grant, who commands the British division on this side of the road that these guys are hitting. Uh, he's a little arrogant and a bit pompous. In fact, everything he writes is a bit this way. He says the attempt was bold. Um, but when it came to the push, they failed totally in execution. I was uneasy for 10 minutes. Um, I think he's lying. Because if you see what happens here, his entire division, everybody on this side of the road is gonna get crushed and driven back towards Germantown uh, Road or Germantown Avenue today. So he might, I mean, after the fact he can write that because of what's gonna happen at the end of this battle. But I guarantee you, he was, a little, he was at least uneasy for an hour or so. Uh, this is Joseph Plum Barton, who's, uh, who uh, penned one of the most famous journals of the war, or autobiographies, I should say, called Private Yankee Doodle. Uh, he's with the Connecticut troops here. And he says that uh, they drove the British quite through their camp. They left their kettles in which they were cooking their breakfasts on the fires. And some of their garments were lying on the ground, which the owners had not time to put on. Fairs went on well for some time. The enemy were retreating before us. So lots of success, another British account here. Another one talking about that volley where they laid their muskets on the fence. This Captain William Scott says, the enemy's column following the road leading to Germantown, which run along the whole front of the 4th Regiment, um, faced to the fence and leaning their pieces on the bottom rail, for it was a hollow road in that part, fired on the 4th Regiment and knocked them down 50 men. And that's that volley I was talking about earlier. All right, so the last column we got to talk about is the Maryland and New Jersey militia. 
Um, they're coming in on the far American left, and they're going to uh, um, hit the uh, Queen's Rangers and the British Brigade of Guards here on the British right. So just a couple quotes here. Uh, this is uh, Asher Holmes of the New Jersey Militia. Says the Jersey Militia and Redcoats, uh, I'll explain that in a second, and the Maryland Militia drove the enemy when we first made the attack. The fire was very severe and the enemy ran. So the Redcoats he's talking about, there was a regiment with the New Jersey Militia wearing uh, captured British Redcoats. And so they're wearing British Army regimentals. Um, even though it's an American regiment, that's what he's talking about there. And then just a British quote from the other side, uh, Richard Fitzpatrick of the Brigade of Guards. Remember being surprised by their army coming down upon us and making a most desperate attack. Surprising indeed in every sense of the word, for we had not above two hours notice of their advancing and then gave no credit to it. So the British were surprised. Um, a lot of books about the battle only talk about the aftermath and the fighting around Cliveden, which I'm going to talk about in a second. But most books fail to give credit to what actually happened here. They were winning. The Americans were winning the battle. So what goes wrong, right? Well, during the overrun, when they were overrunning all these British camps, two companies of the 40th Regiment of Foot are about to get overrun. And rather than get captured or or, or retreat disorganized, uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Musgrave takes those two companies into this house. Uh, it's called Cliveden. It was the country estate of Benjamin Chu, who was the Pennsylvania Attorney General prior to the war under the royal government. Um, and you can see here, most of the Americans drove past the house down into this area. So they went past the house. And these two companies went in and started barricading the doors and windows. Right, so let's examine what happens at this house. So this is Lieutenant Colonel Musgrave. He's the guy that took him in there. So the painting done after the war, and you could see Cliveden um, behind his shoulder here in the painting, because it was that important to him when he had this portrait done. Okay, so this is Timothy Pickering. He's the Army's Adjutant General. He's Washington's Adjutant General. It's like the senior staff officer for Washington. Um, they're riding down the road. They're actually up here. Washington and his staff are riding down the road following the, the line of troops that are engaged in front of them. And Washington um, turns to uh, uh, Pickering and gives him an order. He says they heard a very heavy fire of musketry. Gen uh, uh, General Sullivan's division, uh, divisions, it was evident, were warmly engaged with the enemy, but neither was in sight. So they hear, let me get rid of this for a second. They hear all the shooting down here. They hear all these volleys being discharged, but so much fog and battle smoke is between them here and down here. They can't see anything. They can't see what's actually happening. But Washington's a little worried that they're wasting ammunition, that in the fog and the smoke, they can't see what they're shooting at and they're just shooting at nothing. Uh, and that bothers Washington. So he says the Pickering, I am afraid General Sullivan is throwing away his ammunition, meaning he's wasting it. Ride forward and tell him to preserve it. So Pickering is given an order to leave up, leave here where Washington is, ride forward to where everybody's engaged, find Sullivan, and tell him to slow down his rate of fire. And he does that. He rides down Germantown Avenue like this, 
Uh, he says uh, he spurred his horse three or 400 yards beyond Chu's house. So beyond this house, he passes it, finds Sullivan, and delivered to him the general's orders. Now it's when Pickering's riding back that he begins to realize there's a problem at the Chu house or Clifton. He says, the first notice I received of it was from the whizzing of musket balls across the road before, behind, and above me as I was returning after delivering the orders to Sullivan. And Pickering, so you gotta imagine here, let me move this for a second. He's riding down this road. I know it's hard to see with these trees in the yard. These trees would not have been here in the 18th century. Um, and you can kind of see through these trees, Cliveden is back off the road a good uh, 100 yards probably. And Pickering's riding from the right to the left in this photograph, back past the house. And he says, I turned and looked over my shoulder and saw the blaze of the muskets whose shot were still aimed at me from the windows of a large stone house standing back about a hundred yards from the road. So they're, they're whizzing musket balls past him as he's riding down the road. Just like this. And Pickering returns to Washington, who at this point is standing in front of this Bensel house. There's a modern picture of it. This is today about two blocks north of Cliveden. If you go there today, um, it's about two blocks north of Cliveden. But in the 18th century, this was all open ground. There was nothing between Cliveden and the Bensel house, except the fence along the north uh, property line of the Cliveden property. So this was open. Now it was very foggy. They probably really couldn't see the house, uh, but it was open ground. And when Pickering gets back to Washington, there's an argument occurring about what to do. He says, when I got back, the officers were discussing in Washington's presence this question, whether the whole of our troops then behind, meaning the reserve troops, should immediately advance regardless of the enemy and choose house or first summon them to surrender. So you've got this debate. And the debate is gonna boil down to Pickering versus Henry Knox. Pickering is gonna argue, we gotta keep driving. This battle is not over. We don't know what the outcome of the battle is. We have to keep, we have to keep going. Put one regiment in front of the house to keep an eye on it, but we gotta keep pushing. Henry Knox is gonna argue, mm -mm, you can't leave this, what he calls a castle or a fortification in our rear. We have to deal with that first before continuing the fight. So let's look at some of the quotes here from the argument that happens. Uh, Knox literally says, it would be unmilitary to leave a castle in our rear. That's his argument, that we're gonna have to take out those troops in that house before we continue the rest of the battle. Pickering retorts, we are now in the midst of the battle and its issue is unknown. In the state of uncertainty and so well secured as the enemy find themselves, they will not regard a summon, they will fire at your flag. What they're talking about here, what Knox wants to do is send a, a, an officer with a white flag up the driveway of the house and summon those troops to surrender. And what Pickering's saying, if you do that, that guy is gonna get shot. That's what Pickering's saying here.
Um, and Pickering was right, because the first thing they're going to do is they're going to send an officer up the road. And the officer they send is Lieutenant Colonel William Smith. He says, I imagine they would pay no respect to the flag, they being well posted and the battle far, far enough from being decided. The event justified my apprehensions. In a few minutes, Smith was brought back with his leg broken and shattered by a musket ball fired from the house. He will die a few days later from this. Um, now, to give the British a little bit of credit, again, in the smoke and confusion of the battle, I'm not so sure they even saw the white flag. They might have just seen a couple of Americans walk up the driveway and shot at them. So give them a little bit of credit. They might not have actually seen the white flag. But they do shoot at him. All right, so the next thing they're going to do is they're going to move some artillery um, into a field across the road from the house. So if you were standing in this photograph, right behind us is the yard of a, well, there's a house there now. But in the 18th century, it was an open field. And they planted some artillery in this, in this field and started shooting at the front of the house. All right, so something like this. You got artillery shooting across the road, across these fields, into the front of the house. Um, and it's going to do damage. There was statuary in the yard where arms are shot off and the uh, heads are shot off the statuary. Oops, let me back up. Uh, the urns on the top of the house are knocked off, windows are shattered. The front door's blown in. Um, but this is very thick. These are very thick stone walls. And so the actual walls of the house, the, the bull, the, the artillery rounds are just bouncing off the house. Um, they don't have very heavy guns. They're really shooting at this house with three pounders and four pounders. They don't have big, heavy siege artillery that could knock down the walls of this house. So the artillery is pretty ineffectual, other than cosmetic damage. Um, while this artillery shooting at the house, the reserve division under Lord Sterling is brought forward and his two brigades are deployed. Nash is lined up along the fence on the north side of the property. These are the North Carolinians and they start shooting at the side of the house. Maxwell's New Jersey troops, they line up uh, around where the artillery is and they're shooting at the front of the house. Um, and they realize the artillery is not doing much. Now, I actually think there was no order actually given for this. I can't, the, the primary sources are a little vague on this, but my take is, is that Elias Dayton, the Colonel of the First New Jersey, takes it upon himself to charge up this driveway, up the front drive of the house, and attack the front of the house with his regiment. And the Third New Jersey just sort of followed him. Um, the other two regiments, the Second and the Fourth, do not charge up towards the front of the house. Um, but definitely two regiments go charging up to the front of this house. And some images of it, um, uh, uh, post-war images of the Americans attacking the front of the house. Uh, this is the one from the cover of my book of them trying to break through the, bar the barricade at the front door. Uh, this is a modern view I took from inside the house looking out one of the second floor windows. Um, so you gotta imagine these New Jersey troops charging up this drive and trying to come into the front of the house right here in this yard. And then British troops having this view, this is the view of the British troops shooting out the windows of the house um, and killing guys in the front yard of the house. And then a view of the British troops, uh, modern artwork of them defending the inside of the house here. 
Well, this doesn't work either. So shooting at the house with artillery didn't work. Uh, charging the front of the house doesn't work. So the next thing they're gonna try to do is burn the house. It's made of stone though. So probably not gonna work, but that's what they're gonna try and do. So here's another uh, post-war artwork and you can see here, I got it highlighted. They take a wagon with some straw on it and push it up to the side of the house where the uh, doorway to the kitchen was, to the uh, summer kitchen and they light it on fire and it doesn't work. Uh, mostly what happens is the officers that are trying to do this get shot. Uh, one of those officers is this man, his name is John Lawrence, whose father is Henry Lawrence, who will be the president of Congress just a couple weeks after this. John gets shot through the shoulder here. He survives it, but it's a pretty severe wound. So John Lawrence. So none of this works. Um, but what happens is this is making a lot of noise. There's a lot of commotion and noise back here. So all these units up here that attacked past the house that are beyond the house start to hear all this shooting going on behind them. And individually, um, regiments and then ultimately whole brigades start to peel away from the fighting up here and marching back the other way, thinking they left a bunch of British troops in their rear. And so these units start to peel away and move towards Cliveden. But again, smoke, fog, guess what's gonna happen? Friendly fire. They're gonna start shooting at their own guys, not knowing who's over there. So you get something like this happen. Okay, and then also from uh, Nathaniel Green's column, Alexander McClanahan's brigade peels away from Green's column because they also hear all this shooting and they come at the house from this direction. So now you've got units moving on this house from all four directions and all shooting towards the house, but not everybody's gonna hit the house, they're gonna miss and hit friendly troops on the, on the opposite side of the house. And then ultimately, because all these American troops here are reversing course, it allows the British to regroup um, from their inertial losses and counterattack. And so just some quotes here from all this for you. This is Anthony Wayne. He says, the Americans ran away from the arms of victory ready and open to receive us. Uh, this is George Whedon, on, on, uh, one of the Virginia Brigade commanders. Uh, he says, by some means or other, the right wing gave way, which encouraged the enemy to rally and press forward. The left shortly after was also broke and a general repulse took place instead of a victory the most important had we attained it. Uh, uh, there's a British quote, uh, the officers hallowed out loudly, charge, charge. The enemy turned about, fired and run forward through the camp. One of my lieutenants was mortally wounded and a very few others, but they pursued the enemy who were forming and threw down their arms. Another British quote, um, they're gonna overrun the uh, 9th Virginia. Um, after we fired the first volley, they ran towards the center, leaving the prisoners loose. So they had captured a lot of British troops during the advance. Well, when they started to retreat, they let them go. And what did those prisoners do? They uh, formed immediately and took to their arms, firing upon the enemy with the greatest ardor. The left-hand company of our regiment took 63 of that party who upon their approach threw down their arms, 
the battalion pursuing on. So these guys that were just a little while ago holding British troops as prisoners are now themselves becoming prisoners. Musgrave's men inside of the house here, once the British advance and advance beyond Cliveden, Musgrave's able to come out of the house and join the pursuit um, with those two companies he had inside the house with him. See, just like that. Um, but ultimately, because of that reverse and all those decisions made at Cliveden, um, the Americans retreat, and they're going to retreat pretty far. So when they started the battle, when they marched, they marched from here on Methacton Hill to come attack down here in Germantown, marched all night, fought for a few hours in the morning. Then they retreat actually off of this map. They retreat all the way to where modern Schwenksville is off of this map. Most of these regiments between marching and fighting uh, are gonna march about 45 miles in that 24 hour period. Okay, I'm sure you have questions and I'm pretty close to my time limit here. But if anybody's interested in a signed copy of either one of my books, uh, I also have a book I did on Brandywine. You're more than welcome to email me direct. My email address is here if you'd like to get a signed copy. I mean, the books are on Amazon too. I know some people like the signed copy and we can make those arrangements. All right, questions. All right. Uh, thank you, Michael. Um, if you have any questions, some of you have already submitted, feel free to keep submitting them into the Q&A. Uh, and now I'm going to turn it over to Allie to moderate. All right. Thank you for your questions, everybody. And thank you so much, Michael. Um, the first question we have is, where did General Howe cross the Schuylkill? Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I don't know who I'm talking about, but if you're familiar with Valley Forge Park, um, the George Washington Chapel, which is a modern chapel, wasn't there during the war. Um, basically, right behind where the chapel is today in Valley Forge Park, there was a ford called Fatland Ford. And there was a road, basically the driveway into where the church is today is the old roadbed to the ford. Um, and that's where they crossed. I know if you're not familiar with the Valley Forge area, that means nothing. Let me try to think of another way to put that. Um, basically... Um, just north of the modern town of Norristown. Um, so we're talking a good 20 miles west of the city. Hopefully that answers your question. Okay, great. Uh, the next one I have is from E. Radley, who says, I can never understand how men can march so far and for so long, I assume with little food and then fight a battle. Is it the adrenaline that you think gets them through? Um, I don't know if the adrenaline would have, because I, I don't know how they did it. I think that they were um, optimistic that they could achieve victory. They were, um, yes, they lost the Battle of Brandywine, but they stood for a little while there. They stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the British and started to realize after Brandywine that we might be able to fight these guys and not always lose. And so I think they had some motivation to try to prove themselves, which helped them get through that night march. And then the fact that they found so much early success in the battle kept them going. Now, the, the adrenaline is what gets them out of there because they don't want to get captured. So it's the adrenaline that gets them off the battlefield when it turns into a loss. Um, I think it's my best way to answer that question. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Adrenaline can only take you so far. Yeah. 
Um, okay, our next question comes from Dan, who asks, how many British troops were, were in Cliveden and how many Americans attacked? Oh, okay, so actually in Cliveden, it's only two companies. Uh, we're only talking about uh, between 50 and 100. I can't give you an exact number. Um, you know, if you want to take the happy medium, probably somewhere around 75 guys um, is what's in the house. Now, the Americans attack it. Hmm, how do I want to answer that? The two regiments that attack the house that actually charge up the driveway, we're only talking about... Oh, I'm trying to do some quick math in my head. Bear with me for a second here. We're probably only talking about between three and 400 guys. Now, if you talk about everybody that reverses course and ultimately starts coming at that house from four sides, we're talking five to 6,000 guys. It's a big number. Um, yeah, is that, ho hopefully that answers your question. That's way more than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, wow, okay. Um, our next one comes from Larry, who wants to know who did the painting on the cover of your book? A guy named Howard Pyle. Um, he did some other Revolutionary War artwork, um, but he was a painter out of southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, uh, I can't get exactly. I want to say late 1800s. Don't quote me on that, though. I'd have to look it up. <laughs> uh, but it's Howard Pyle is the, is the artist. Okay, great. Um, that name is familiar. Um, I think we have a few of his pieces in our museum collection. You might, yeah. He That specific piece is in the Delaware Museum of Art um, out in Wilmington. Okay. Um, next we have, um, was there any post-battle repercussions for the troops and officers who were holding the British and fell back to engage at Clifton? Oh, well, there is a question. Now, the guys that held, the guy that's going to take the blame um, is Adam Stevens, or Adam Steven. Uh, he's one of the division commanders in Green's column. He is going to get accused of drunkenness and not being with his troops. I have found multiple quotes of him giving orders to people that were not under his command at the battle. Um, but I can't find anybody in his actually di actual division that remembers seeing him during the battle. Um, and then after the battle, he's going to go through a court-martial proceedings for, for that and for being drunk. And he will get uh, cashiered. He's thrown out of the army. He's one of only two general officers throughout the entire war that suffer that fate. Um, the other one is Charles Lee after the Battle of Monmouth. Um, in 1778. So uh, I would say, yes, yeah, Stephen's going to take the brunt of the blame, even though he's not the only one screwing up that day. Stephen's going to take the brunt of the blame and get thrown out of the army. Okay, our next question comes from Tanya, who asks, do you think that they would have won the battle had they not tried to take the house, or were there other factors that played into that? So there's the million-dollar question, right? Um, the great what-if. I will say this, had they not uh, messed around with that house, that fresh division of some 1800 troops that hadn't fired a bullet yet, could have rotated towards the front, replaced the troops that had started the battle, um, allowed them to regroup and get resupplied with ammunition and continue the fight. Now, remember earlier, let me go back here, let me see if I can find a good map. 
Um, at the tail end of the early morning stuff, how far back do I gotta go to find what I'm looking for? Gotta be getting close. Okay, so if you look here, at the very tail end of the morning assaults, they had completely crushed the right flank of the British. These guys, all these troops, got all the way down to this creek here, the Wingahawking Creek. That's how far they drove in the British camp. So this right wing of the camp was basically obliterated. Over here, they really never got heavily engaged with uh, Wilhelm von Knipphausen's division. These guys were fairly intact, but um, these units over here were starting to lap around their right rear. So had they brought forward the fresh division to replace Sullivan's worn out guys to attack from the front while these guys continued to come in from the back, I, it's, it's def, I mean, it's a hypothetical, but there is reason to believe they would have completely driven these British troops all the way down into the city of Philadelphia. Now, what's the value in that? Because I don't think they could have recaptured Philadelphia. Don't, don't, don't take it that far. So what's the value? I mean, hold on, let me try to jump to the map I want to show you. So if we look here at uh, where Philadelphia is down here. So Germantown's up here. So let's say they crushed all these troops and drove them down inside of Philadelphia. Well, what's the advantage of that? Well, if you look here, Philadelphia in the 18th century sat on a peninsula. The Schuylkill River and the Delaware River form a peninsula. The Schuylkill River empties into the Delaware just south of this map, just off the bottom edge of this map. So Philadelphia sits on a narrow peninsula. So had Washington drove these guys in and set up a defensive line on the north edge of the city to keep them from marching out of the city, um, and also keep in mind, something I didn't talk about much, and I'm going to cover a lot in the new book I'm working on, the Americans still controlled the river. They held forts just south of, the, of Philadelphia called Fort Mifflin and Fort Mercer. So the British fleet could not get into the city to resupply the army. The, the army was on the verge of starvation at one point because they weren't getting enough supplies, the British army. So had Washington bottled up this peninsula and continued to hold the river forts, he could have starved them out like he did at Boston. And I think that was the long-term goal had he had found success at Germantown. I probably answered that way more than you really wanted, but that's that's my take on it. Um, speaking of Washington, um, did Washington ever make any comments about Knox's insistence on attacking Clifton? Uh, Washington's too diplomatic for that. <laughs> Why he's going to be a good president later on. He will never, that I have found so far, um, berate or criticize an officer openly or in public or in writing. Now, what he thought privately, Lord only knows. Um, and we may never know that. Um, but no, he did not. No, he did not. Interesting. Um, this question comes from George, who asks, were the Queen's Rangers engaged in the battle and what role did they play and who was commanding them at the time? Okay, all good questions. Um, it is, uh, yes, they are. They're this unit right here. This is the Queen's Rangers, them right there on this map. They fought Smallwood's guys, these Maryland and New Jersey militia. So they are engaged. Their commander at the time is, I think it's, it's Weymouth. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. It's W-E-M-Y-S-S. -S. 
Um, Simcoe gets their command like a week after the battle. Um, so John Simcoe will get the, the command of the Rangers, but it's just after Germantown. So I think Weymouth, I know he commanded them at Brandywine. I think he also commands them here. Um, that's my best guess on their commander at Germantown. Okay, great. Um, this next question is, um, there used to be a reenactment of the battle at Cliveden. Do you know if that still occurs? It does. In fact, it was just, what's today's date? It was like a week and a half ago. Um, yeah, they still do it. They still let uh, reenactors inside the house and shoot out the windows. <laughs> it's, quite the, it's quite the scene if you ever get a chance to go see it. <laughs> That's very fun. Yeah, um, it is. It's a fun one to go watch. That, that would be very entertaining. Um, absolutely. Um, so this next question is mine, actually. Um, so what was the most interesting thing that you found while doing research for your book? Oh, that's a good one. Um, all right. I, I honestly didn't expect, basically, I wrote Germantown. I, I wrote Brandywine thinking I was never going to write another book because you know, I had worked at Brandywine. But then going around and promoting Brandywine, there was a lot of interest in me continuing the story um, chronologically. So I started diving into this. And I honestly had fairly low expectations of the meaning of the battle in the greater scope of the history of the war. But what I found is actually um, Franklin and John Adams, who were over in, in France negotiating the, the Treaty of Alliance, um, in their writings, both cite Germantown as being as important as Saratoga to the French alliance, which sort of stunned me because everybody knows about Saratoga, thinking that's what created, well, and it did, it's a big deal, I'm not taking anything away from Saratoga, but they both cite it as proof that Washington was willing to launch an offensive. You gotta keep in mind, prior to Germantown, Washington never went on the attack. He was always defending somewhere. So this was the first time he launched an attack with his main army against the main British army. And that, even though they lost, that impressed the, the French. In fact, their friend, the French foreign minister also cites it when he's talking about um, uh, signing the, the Treaty of Alliance. Um, so that, that kind of threw me off. I wasn't expecting to find that. Um, and I talk about that in the epilogue of the book, um, the, the importance towards the alliance. What a plot twist, I'm sure that was for you. <laughs> I just, I just, I went in with a preconceived notion that in the, in the, in the larger scope of, of the war and the history of it, I thought it was a minor piece of the war. Um, so I, I was stunned to see that in the writings of those guys over there negotiating for the alliance. Great, and then this is gonna be our last question, arguably the most important. Um, if you could dine with anyone at France's Tavern, who would it be? Oh, um, from this army? Nathaniel Green. I would pick Nathaniel Green. It's who my son's named after too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I would take Nathaniel Green. He's, he's, he's one of my favorites. I don't think we've gotten although, that answer before. If, although if Adam Stevens a drunk, that could be fun too. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Good answers. All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for your presentation and those great answers. Thank you, Allie, for facilitating our Q&A. And thank you 
to all of you at home for joining us. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs, you can join our mailing list at francistavernmuseum.org. There you will also be able to find all of our social media accounts as well as the calendar of upcoming programs. Our next lecture is another virtual one. It's going to be on November 11th with Nina Sankovic. Uh, and she is actually the honorable mention for last year's uh, Francis Tapper Museum Book Award. So it's gonna be pretty interesting. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the revolutionary era with the public. If you would like to make a donation, you can also do that on our website, francistavernmuseum.org. Now, um, that's it for us. So thank you all for joining us for another Francis Tavern Museum virtual lecture, and we hope to see you again soon. Well, thank you. That was fun. Yeah.